So we are humble before and joyful in Jesus. Y'all ready for that? Can we unpack a little bit of that this morning? Can we have some fun in God's word? Amen. God's word is living and alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. So if you have God's word, uh, whether that is on your smart device or your hard copy, Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you. There's some underneath these chairs, uh, these black Bibles. That is our gift to you. It's a copy of God's Word. Turn there to page 1037. Again, that is our gift to you. But I love, as you're turning and we get ready for Ephesians chapter 4, I love how God works, how he speaks to each of us as individuals, but also, also to us as a corporate body of believers. And here's what I mean by that. In his providence, in his sovereignty, we were able to wrap up chapters 1 through 3 before we went on Christmas break, if you will, and did a couple of standalone series through last week. And as we went on that, and as we kind of uh, prepared for what lies ahead as we turn the page, in his providence, he was stirring in our hearts about this rallying cry. Back in October, we met as elders and, and staff, and we started thinking through, okay, God, what do you want from us? What do you want to do in and through us? And he was stirring in our hearts, and we started praying and thinking, God, what would this look like? And he led us uh, to put Ephesians chapter 4, uh, again, not really even knowing for sure where we would be, but Ephesians chapter 4 on today to pick back up in our series again, that we would be humble before joyful in. And here is what I mean by that. Let's read together God's word, Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Then he says, there's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. All. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, let me just kind of catch you up to speed because I think it's important that we understand the context. If you're here for the first time, you're picking up midway through uh, this letter that Paul's writing to the church of Ephesus. It's a big deal to understand the context. And as he's writing to this church, it's probably made up of house churches spread out all across the region there in Ephesus. And so culturally speaking, to kind of fill you in, it was very similar to the culture that we live in here in the West. A lot of idol worshiping, right? A lot of false gods, a lot of worshiping of money and a lot of worshiping of themselves, a lot of worshiping of other gods who would always over-promise and under-deliver over and over again. And they got caught up in this. And if they would just give more, if they would just buy more silver from, our, uh, uh, from all the different gods, then, then that god would bless them. And it was just this constant over and over of over-promising and under-delivering. The culture that lived on, if it makes you happy, go for it culture that said, you do you. Sound familiar? A little bit, hopefully, because that is where we live. Paul writes, and he's reminding them of who they are now. 
He's writing this letter to all these little house churches that he loves. He he, uh, opens his letter to the faithful saints of Ephesus, and he's reminding them of this new identity that is found in Christ. And from the get-go, he spends three chapters, y'all, the first three chapters just drawing their eyes to the beautiful and glorious riches of Christ, not themselves. Totally countercultural here. He's drawing their eyes to the glorious riches of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them. And he essentially kicks this off by, by praying several prayers of praise. And he's teaching the, the theology of what it means to be a Christ follower. Chapters 1, you see this glorious riches of God's grace. Chapter 2, you see more glorious riches and in, in what it means to be rooted in Christ. That you're united in him. United also to one another that we see in chapter 2 and 3. And he wants them to sit in this. He spends half of his letters, Paul, who wrote just about 70% of the New Testament, these letters to this, these churches, he's, most of his letters, he spends half of them focusing in on, sitting in, pondering, thinking, considering, marinating in who Christ is. And what Christ has done to them and for them. And so Paul, as I do also, I want you to soak up all that God has done in and through Christ for them and to them. Or as he says in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, excuse me, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. And so he, again, is just asking, encouraging them, pleading with them, would you have your eyes open to things like the beauty of the gospel that he says that you've been predestined before the foundations of the earth, that you were chosen, that you once fatherless, have been adopted, that you, once dead, were made alive. You were given new hearts. You lived meaningless lives, worshiping yourself, but now have purpose because I, Jesus, have given you a new identity. He tells them that God's grace has been lavished on them through Christ the blood of Christ, that God's given them an inheritance. As a matter of fact, that they themselves, the Father loves them so much that the Father actually makes us, them, Christians, at that time, his inheritance. Brothers and sisters now, united to Christ and to one another. So all sorts of beautiful imagery, sparking us to just think the descriptions over and over again. Why? Why does Paul spend so much time on that? Well, because Paul was the chief of sinners, and Jesus had radically saved his life. And he knew, he knew, family, that that changed everything. He knew and believed and clung to that the gospel changes everything. The good news to our weary souls is that it changes everything. Even in the midst of tension. Paul draws their eyes to this glorious riches, absolutely. But what is beautiful here is this beautiful truth that they've been united to Christ 
And then he, he kind of just starts uh, in chapter 2 and 3, he, he kind of starts pushing a little. It's, it's one thing to be united to Christ and in Christ. It's another thing to, to what? To be united to one another. He reminds them that they had also been united to each other. Now, it's interesting here, again, to kind of just give you some context. We, we think about that, and you're like, yeah, we're all pretty common, you know, common folks, and we all live in this area, and we all do these things, and uh, the thing to be in the Western church right now or in culture used to be, it was cool to be a Christian. Now there's some pushback, and we're starting to feel some of that. They felt every bit of that. Meaning people who heard the gospel and their lives were changed, different backgrounds, different upbringings, now set across from their enemies, Jews and Gentiles, now Christians. Christ had saved them, given, their, given them a new life, now sit across from each other, folks that they despised, folks that they went out of their way to constantly Avoid, and now Paul says, yeah, 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 we're united in Christ. Also united to one another. Brothers and sisters is the familial language he uses. Different political views, different ethnicities, different ways of thinking, different views on life. This was hard for both groups, Jews and Gentiles in this church. This wasn't just a rivalry between the Cowboys and the Eagles, right? Like we all know. Everybody in here, the Cowboys, right? If not, we'll talk later. It's okay. Or this wasn't just a rivalry like the, the um, Aggies and the Longhorns. I'm not even going to go there. Um, it was even more than cons conservatives versus liberals, this rivalry. And Paul knew this tension because he lived in it. He was once far off. and God radically saved his life. He lived in the tension, so much so that that's why he was in prison when he wrote this. He was writing against the tension and saying, no, Jews and Gentiles alike, Christ can save anybody. You're not too far gone. He loves you, pursues you, radically can save your life. He's saying this is what he's called you to, in Christ and to one another. Their lives were once marked by hatred for one another but we saw in th chapter 3 that God goes beyond the walls of hostility. That through Jesus, who is our peace, a new race has been given and, and been made. A new family. Christ actually, we saw, tore down the wall of hostility. And now that they have heard the good news of Jesus, they've believed in them, who were once dead, are now made alive in Christ, united to him and also to one another. But now, in Christ... Their lives were to be marked with something far different than their culture allowed. Their new life of being in Christ was absolutely, absolutely countercultural. Went against the grain. So Paul, he continues on. And I love that because he doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't leave them hanging. And I love that because guess what? This is really good news for each of us today. Like, it's one thing to cling to those beautiful truths, united to united to Christ, in Christ, and with one another. He doesn't leave them hanging. It's a new year, same you, lots of resolutions floating around. Here we are a week or so in, but what will you be marked by? I'm not talking about goal setting today. I'm talking about what Paul is saying. What will you, family, be marked by this year, today? 
the next decision you have to make, when you go and leave from here and we scatter out, what will you be marked by? Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you have received. Paul picks up in chapter 4 and this, this letter pivots and he says, basically, in light of all of this, I just took seven minutes to describe chapters 1 through 3 because it's important. If I just start with therefore, you don't even know what's happened. We all have to cling to this. Because of all this, in light of all this, what we just covered, this beautiful theology of who we are, what Christ has done, and now our, our new identity in him, Paul now moves us from theological to now very practical. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 will be super practical. From doctrine to now duty. From our wealth in Christ to now our walk in Christ. What do we do with this? So in light of all that, do this. Walk. I urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you have received. Like I want you to feel and experience his heart this morning. He says, I urge you. I beg you, I plead with you, because we've been given a new identity in Christ, because of this good news, we got to do something with it. And he says we are to walk worthy of that calling. Paul gets that. Like that, that's why it's his plea with us. He's urging them to live out of this new identity, to walk worthy of the calling that they've Received And it's bigger than Paul. This calling's bigger than him as he's writing this letter. It's bigger than the Ephesians. It's bigger, this calling is bigger than the Jews, than the Gentiles. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. And it's even bigger than Grace Church Alito. That calling is the same thing that put Paul in prison. It's the gospel message that totally turns this world upside down. That calling comes from Jesus' teaching and his kingdom come and his will be done. That constantly is what, that calling is what collides with our hearts every day. His kingdom, not Matt's kingdom. Every day, maybe I'm the only one, but when I wake up, it's Matt's kingdom. And I have to constantly fight that, no, 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 it's his kingdom come. This calling that he's put on your life, it's his kingdom come and his will be done. It's what John says when he says, more of him and less of me, that Christ must increase and I must decrease. It's what Jesus says about his kingdom in Matthew chapter 5, that the first would be last and the last would be first, where he goes on the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. What? What kind of kingdom is this? Blessed is the poor in spirit? Blessed are those who mourn. Countercultural. Blessed are those, blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. It's this calling that Paul is urging us urging them, pleading with them to do what? To live a life that is countercultural. To live out of this new identity through the power of the Holy Spirit. He talks about that in chapters 2 and 3. 
about how we've been strengthened with the power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave lives in you. You want to know how to live counterculturally? Focus on the Spirit lives within you. Like, I think it's one thing for us to ponder why the Ephesian church needed this letter. We're on this side of the letter, right? Like, we're on this side of of their culture, and we can look back and think, yeah, 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 that makes sense. We have commentaries, and we can see why they needed this letter. How they were living, what needed to change. They were trying to answer these questions How can people from wildly different backgrounds, Jews and Gentiles, who've been worshiping former and other gods, how will they live and walk together? Like, we can look back at that and think, man, these are the questions that Paul's addressing. What's happening? It's another thing for us to read these words, to hear them, and to think and consider, what might God be asking you? What might God be asking you? Us, why do you personally need to hear Paul's reminder this morning? Why does Grace Church Alito need to hear this today? Family, I believe, I believe when we really live out of this new identity, where his grace has been lavished on us, where we actually cherish his grace and, and understand and, and fully comprehend what that means for us, then it will, we will look far different than the world around us. We ought to look different. This is Paul's mission statement moving forward in his letter that they would remember. In light of all this, remember this, the calling that you have received, now walk worthy of it. Not sprint not go from uh, the least of these to now all of a sudden some super Christian walk worthy of it. And again, he doesn't leave you hanging. How do you do that? 2023, how do you walk worthy of the calling that you have received, Christian brother and sister? You do it with all humility. Look what he says, with all humility. For them in their culture, humility represented really a weakness. Like we look at that and we're like, man, be humble, be humble, and, and it's, it's something to be thankful for and something to actually uh, try, to, try to grasp and, and be somebody who is full of humility. And in their culture, it was a weakness. Their earnings, they lived for themselves, their earnings, their glory, their family, their earned inheritance. I think I could fight for, that's probably true for our culture and society today. And to be humble was a form of weakness. You do you. You take care of yourself. This walking in humility was countercultural. They were to lay down their lives now, not just for Jews for Jews, Gentiles for Gentiles, man for man, myself for myself. No, no, no. They were called to lay down their lives for all believers, for all people, Christian alike. Jews for the Gentiles, Gentiles for the Jews, the unlovely, the unwanted, the outcast. And Paul says, walk in this calling with all humility. I love Philippians chapter 2. It's a great example here. Paul says, before he explains the humility of Christ, I could go there, but I wanted to read uh, this first part. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... 
Make my joy complete by thinking the same way. You can hear his urging, his, his pleading. Having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interest of others. What would this look like for you? For me, the last eight weeks, Spirit has totally wrecked. Um, I feel like if I had any pride left, he's totally wrecked that, and I'm thankful for it, but it's a painful process. Uh, but to, to just get a little personal here, um, my pride, my kingdom, I live for me. My family, how I parent, a lot of times I, what I'm fighting is for my kingdom and not God's kingdom. I want my time. I want my space. I want to sit and be in, in quiet peace. And the Spirit has just been wrecking me over and over again with this word presence. A little bit of that has to, be, has to do with the, the Advent season, Emmanuel, God with us, and me just reflecting on what does that mean that God's with us? It means, well, that I'm the... Uh, the, the kid who's always saying, Dad, 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 or I'm the kid who's always running from Dad, the Father in heaven, and he's patient with me. He's present with me. He is God with us. I wonder what that means for you and I when you think about your pride and you think about your presence with the people you are with. Are you rushed? Are you hurried? Are you moving on to the next conversation? Are you fixing that brother or sister across from you as they're talking and you're thinking, yeah, do this, don't do that, stop doing this, I can solve all your problems, look at me go. Are you present with them? We move too fast and we have this anxious presence about ourselves. That's pride. It's weird for me to think that anxiousness is prideful, but anxiousness for me means that when things are out of my control, I'm anxious, which means my idol is control. I want to control things. And when it's out of my control and I live like this, I say, God, in all humility, I humbly come before you and I submit my day to you. Or how about we get real practical here? Presence with the people that you spend your time with. Let's just talk about your phones. My phones. You present with the people that you're with? I haven't been. Man, I, my wife's probably like, oh my gosh, he's been preaching to me for the last six weeks and now he's preaching to all of us. I get it, Matt. But listen, I, I'm, I'm not somebody who just sits there and scrolls aimlessly or always looking if I make a post at who, you know, who's liked it. But I will tell you, there, that pride, that's not humility. That pride in me of like when I make a post, you see the red notification, it's like, oh, who, who likes what I had to say, maybe it's just me, but your phone creates this anxious presence about ourselves that keeps us from being present with who we're with, your children, people across the coffee table. For me, I've had to leave my phone. Some of y'all are like, man, this guy's addicted to his phone. I'm really not. I'm just... I'm, it's keeping me from being present with people. It really is. I'm not even turning it over on the table, but truly just leaving it in the car when I go to a meeting. What happens when we all were growing up? If you're 35 and above, 
right? You left the house, you went down to the neighbor's house, you didn't have a phone, your parents didn't call you, like what? I wish we could go back in that, right? It was a lot different world too. Um, but I just think, why do we cling to that so much? It creates this, this anxious presence about us. But what else does Paul say is worthy of our calling? That we would be gentle with, uh, with one another. Not harsh, not yelling. Sometimes when I, I'm disciplining my kids out of anger, I lash out in anger, and it seems like if I just yell louder that they're going to get what I'm telling them, right? False. That's not true, but that's how we, we act, out of harshness. And Paul says, no, 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 walk in all humility, but also be gentle with one another. Be present with where you're at, but also be gentle with your brothers and sisters. Be gentle with your children. Be gentle with the acquaintances that you meet, the wanderers, the skeptics, the sojourners. Be gentle. I used to, uh, when I would work for my dad, he would be on a ladder. He did construction. And I remember over and over again, there'd be times where, like, he's got a piece of wire in his mouth. He's talking like this, and, you know, I can't really understand him. He's got a light right here, and he's got a drill, and he's like, John, I need you to hand me that over there. And I, I remember as a kid, honestly, and I love my father, but I remember as a kid, like, thinking, what do you want? What do you mean that over there? I'm eight years old. What are you asking me to grab? This flower? Sure, here's a flower. And I remember times where, like, he would lash out. Son, I just need you to pick up the hammer. Well, Dad, I don't read your mind. And I think back to that, and I also think about how I parent now. So convicting. We are so harsh with our children, with our words. Like, we want them to, to, to know everything as a seven-year-old. We want them to just get it. How can you not understand this? I've told you 37 times, and God the Father saying, I've told you 37,000, and I still love you. I'm still gentle with you. I'm still the father who says, even after you sin, just, just come cuddle up in my lap. I'm still the good father. With all humility, with gentleness. I wasn't going to say it, but I think, I think I'm going to say, the boys that are in the room here, if you're a, a young man, sometimes gentle can be looked at as... Um, that's countercultural. Like, right? The world says, be tough. Be men. Don't cry. Don't do this. Hit harder. Be faster and go stronger. And yeah, that's sports. I get that. But the ways of, of Jesus, young men in the room, was gentle and lowly. And he was the king of the universe who actually went to the cross. So when, when you hear be gentle, don't think of passivity where it's like, well, Guess whatever happens, happens. No, be a man, work hard, grow in that, and know what it means to work hard, but also know what it means to be gentle. Jesus was the gentle and lowly servant. Humility, patience, gentleness. It's like seven sermons in one today. Um, yeah, on patience. Gentle with one another, be patient. Paul says, be patient. I want to ask you this question to think about. Think about this. I don't know what patience means for you, but maybe this will help you understand this. How you respond to an interruption is the type of person you are. How you respond to an interruption is the type of person you are. Again, this is eight weeks of God just wrecking my, my, my pride. Think about that. Whether you're a parent, father, mother, 
coworker, when somebody interrupts you, how do you respond? I don't know, it's gonna push back on your control, your approval. Just think about that, ponder, Paul says, with patience. And then that we'd be gentle and patient with one another and bearing with one another in love. Love cult covers a multitude of sins, family. I think when I read that and when I, when I try to work through what that means, verse 3 in the message, I actually love. It says, and mark that you do this with humility and discipline, not in fits and starts, but steadily pouring yourselves out for each other in acts of love, alert at noticing differences and quick at mending fences. What does it mean for us to bear with one another in love? I think of First uh, Peter chapter 4. He says, above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sin. Some of us, when somebody sins against us, it's like 90 to nothing to that person. Let's work it out now. Let's fix this. You sinned against me. Other of us, others of us, on a more serious note, might get seriously uh, offended or sinned against, and we kind of just shove things under the rug, and we think, well, they probably didn't mean to. Man, if you were genuinely hurt, if you were genuinely sinned against and offended, go to a brother or sister. Follow Matthew 18. Go to that brother or sister and say, man, I, I feel like I need to work through this with you. That's bearing with one another in love. Love covers a multitude of sins. If I pick Sonic and Cody wanted Taco Casa, I don't think I sinned against her, right? But if she holds that against me, that's on her and the Lord. But if she's like, oh, man, love covers a multitude of sin, and I know that Sonic's sinning, but it's okay. I forgive Matt. Sonic's not sinning, to be very clear. But the little, little petty things like that, love covers a multitude of sin. We say often that we are a family of families. That means we're going to sin against each other a lot. We don't need to walk around keeping tally marks on those who have sinned against us. Instead, we should be quick to forgive, walking in love, bearing with one another in love. We should maintain this constant love for one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Pursue love. Pursue one another with a gentle rebuke. I think that's what Paul's getting at, bearing with one another in love. And we do that in all humility, gentle with one another, bearing with one another, one another in love. That is how we make every effort, as Paul says, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We looked earlier in chapter 2 and 3 that Jesus is our peace because he is peace. Paul said back in chapter 2, he came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Folks, this is the grace of God to you and me, to sinners and sufferers. Because the son humbled himself, you can follow suit and walk worthy of the calling that he's placed on your life. Because the father is constantly gentle with you, live a life worthy of that same calling with one another. Because the Father is patient with you, you can live a life worthy of that same calling. Like these are the marks, as we're going to see over and over again, of the Christian life. Family, what if these were the marks of our church as we actually go from here and scatter back to our neighborhoods, to our families, to our jobs? What if our kiddos observed their parents being present with them? 
And not always flustered or not always uh, going from one thing to the next. What if they just observed your presence today? You just made the decision that I'm going to set all things aside. Today is the day the Lord has made and I'm going to be present with whoever I have. What if our neighbors recognize the grace that we have as something different than they've ever seen or experienced? What if the person across from the table had your full attention and because of that, they felt the love of the Father in that one little coffee meeting that you didn't even want to go to, that you just, you were like, why do I do this? What if you were so present with them that they felt seen by the Lord and it radically changed their life? What if the person who interrupted you experienced the grace of God to them that very moment instead of lashing out in anger? What if that changed their life? Instead of viewing God as an angry and patient father figure that they actually saw your presence with them and they felt loved and grace like they've never experienced? What if instead of starting with our brothers and sisters with their sin that we were actually patient with them? We started with their identity in Christ and we worked backwards to the sin. What if that was our culture in 2023 and beyond? What if we as a church, if it was, what if that was our identity, our reality, that we could all walk in this? And here's why I leave with this, leave you with this today. We can. We can do this. Paul finishes: there's one body, there's one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. It's almost as if Paul just can't get enough of just, hey, I'm going to give you practical stuff, but here's why. Here's why. Don't forget of this oneness, because the oneness is the glue that holds everything together. It paves the path for us to joyfully walk in this. To humbly come before him and say, here I am, Lord. I'm going to joyfully submit to you. I'm going to joyfully walk and be present with people that you've put in my path. This is the calling that you have received. One body, one spirit, scattered throughout the entire world. One tribe of every tribe and tongue. God creates one body, one family. The spirit, that one spirit indwells in every believer, past, present, and future. It's like this super glue, this oneness. Paul just reminds them. He says, remember the super glue here. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over of all, who is above all, through all, and in all. And all of these ones underscore the unity that we have as a family of families through Christ Jesus. Jews don't become Gentiles. Enemies of God actually become friends It's not uniformity, Jews to Gentiles, Gentiles to Jews. No, enemies of God actually become friends. Children of wrath becomes sons and daughters of the king of kings, brothers and sisters to one another who are co-heirs in Jesus. Only the Trinitarian God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is able to create unity from such diversity and complexity. Only him. What if this family was our culture? What if as people walked through those doors, they experienced the grace of God to sinners and sufferers? People present with where they're at, all gentleness, bearing with one another in love. We were unhurried. 
I know I've preached longer than normal. My first sermon back, cut me some, some grace here. But I, th- I think it's our rallying cry. It's the word of God. This is what we're called to do. Make much of Jesus. And we do that. We get to do that together. What if that was our culture? Lord, I, I pray. Father, I pray for this. I pray that you make this the ethos of Grace Church Alito. The, the culture where people walked in, where they experienced your grace because we have as well. Where we respond to one another in prayer and gentleness, pointing one another to Jesus. God, where we're patient with one another, where we serve one another. Lord, that a culture of worship and welcome from the one who welcomes us. I beg you, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit to awaken our souls and our lives, that we would stop rushing from one thing to the next, that we would slow down. Slow down enough to experience this for ourselves. But you do a work in our hearts today, and I don't know. Every day, would you do a work in our our lives every day? I beg you, Lord, to to move, to stir, that we would never move on from this. We'd never move on from the good news. We love you. We praise you. Thank you that we get a chance to now respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.